Good evening. Uh, my name is uh, Fawaz Jerjes, and uh, I am a professor of international relations at the London School of Economics, and also the director of the newly established Middle Eastern Center at the London School of Economics. Uh, I would like to welcome all of you to tonight's uh, special event. Uh, but a particular and special welcome is to our members of the advisory board, uh, some of whom are present here. Uh, we are very delighted and we are really also very appreciative that you have taken the time and the effort to come all the way and be with us uh, tonight. It's a huge commitment to serve on any advisory board, in particular on an infant uh, Middle Eastern advisory board. We are very appreciative for your time uh, and commitment. Um, as you well know, some of you, that is, uh, the Middle Eastern Center is basically an infant. We are 10 months uh, old. Um, and I think what we have tried to do since uh, October, that's the, the uh, inaugural date of the Middle Eastern Center, is to really, even though we're very young, we're very ambitious. That is, our fundamental goal is to create a world-class, really, research center of excellence at the LSE, a world-class research center at the LSE, where critical academic research within the social sciences takes place. So it's not just a regional center. It's a Middle Eastern uh, research center within the uh, social sciences. And it's not just about academic, deep, substantive academic uh, questions relating to the Middle East, the sociology, the politics, the history, the cultures of the Middle East, but also, I think, a second component of what we'd like to do is pressing questions facing that part of the world, questions of uh, institutional building, questions of economic and political governance, question of political transition, and really, simply put, questions of both uh, uh, political change and transformation in the Middle East. And I think the goal, and I know I'm, I'm boring you a bit because it, this is a very special event for us, I think the goal to do all of that within a spirit of inclusiveness, uh, tolerance, uh, and civility. Because some of us who work on the Middle East, you know how difficult it is because most of the questions are loaded. It's a very contested uh, region of the world. But we will strive, we will do our best to live up to the liberal ethos of the London School of Economics. I promise you, this is really lies at the heart uh, of what we do. This is really the spirit of the new uh, Middle Eastern uh, Center. And I think it's in this particular spirit that we welcome Professor Lisa Anderson, president of the American University in Cairo, uh, to the London School of Economics. Uh, Lisa, really, I'm not being patronizing, does not need any introduction. She has always been one of the leading academic voices on the Middle East um, in the last uh, 20 or 30 or 40 years. And I think, again, I don't need to tell you who's Lisa Anderson. Uh, she taught at Harvard University. She taught at Columbia University, social studies, sociology, government, international relations. She served as the dean of the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia. She was the chair. She chairs the political science department at Columbia University. She also directed the Middle East Institute, as I understand, at Columbia University at a very rocky and stormy period, some of you who know uh, the studies, uh, the teaching and, and studying the Middle East at Columbia University. She's not just a, a, a scholar and teacher and educator, but also what, what, what this involves that she has written really widely 
uh, on many questions uh, relating to the Middle East. But for my biased perspective, I think your 1988 book, The State and Social Transformation in Tunisia and Libya, truly remains a classic. The State and Social Transformation in Tunisia um, and Libya because of the critical and big questions that Lisa Anderson really addressed in that particular book. Some of us now are returning to the same questions that she did address in her 1988 books. And I think long before many of us discovered field research, going to the field, interviewing people, I think Lisa taught us a great uh, lesson about the importance of studying the region from within as studying the region from the outside uh, in. And I think I'm also delighted because Lisa uh, uh, Anderson is going to revisit some of the themes that she addressed in her book, The State and Social Transformation uh, in Tunisia and Libya, and probably expand uh, uh, that particular theme into Egypt and other countries, as you know, what's happening, uh, what has been happening uh, in the Arab world. A final point uh, uh, about uh, uh, Lisa Anderson is that uh, she's not just uh, a scholar uh, and a writer. Uh, Lisa is an educator uh, par excellence. Uh, most of us talk about the need to nourish civil society, uh, the need for institutional building in the Middle East. That is the greatest challenge facing Middle Eastern societies today. The greatest challenge is really institutional building. How do you put the building blocks of institutions? How do you nourish civil society? I think what Lisa has done is that she has gone a step further than most of us. She is in the tranches now as the president of the American uh, University in Cairo, educating young Egyptians and Arabs uh, and many others. And for all of this, Lisa, and for uh, much more than that, we welcome you to the London School of Economics and the Middle Eastern Center. Please join me in welcoming Lisa Anderson uh, tonight. Thank you very much. Uh, I am pleased and honored to be here with you, um, especially delighted to be with my longtime colleague, Fawaz Gerges, um, at uh, what I think is an important initiative um, at the London School of Economics. And I hope that this is the beginning of a long and fruitful relationship between the American University in Cairo and the Middle East Center here at LSE. Um, I am going to be talking as a political scientist partly about political science and for those of you who are more interested in politics than science you will have to bear with me for a little while. Um, as we get toward the end of my formal remarks we will be talking, I will be talking more about current events and of course you're welcome to ask me anything you'd like when the moment um, comes for that, I would even be happy to talk about what it is like to manage a university on Tahrir Square. <laughs> but let me start first with uh, science. For decades, and certainly since the fall of the Berlin Wall, and for some of the older of us since the wave of democratization in Latin America and Southern Europe in the 1970s, those who study and care about the Arab world, not to say those of us who live there have been puzzling over what has become known as the persistence of authoritarianism there. The costs of the remarkable resistance to the global movement to freer, more transparent, and more accountable government in the latter decades of the 20th century 
in this region were borne principally by the several generations of citizens whose prospects were thwarted by government policymaking that was opaque, unresponsive, demeaning, and increasingly aimed at little more than the perpetuation of the regimes themselves. Far less important, therefore, in the larger scheme of things, but deeply irritating to those of us affected, was the isolation and marginalization of the region in conventional political science. Those of you who are comparative political scientists will know that very rarely is a case produced for comparison from this region, or at least that was the case until January. The study of politics as we know it today in the United States and Europe reflects its origins in efforts in the late 19th century to understand, promote, and protect democratic government, not a bad project. For American political science, where the study of American politics sets the standard for the science, this has been particularly marked, but even in Europe, since at least the collapse of the Weimar Republic in Germany, the study of politics has been shaped by the desire to prevent the breakdown of democracy and to ensure its speedy restoration in the event that it fails. In many respects, the ideological struggle of the Cold War reinforced this democracy-centric science since it discouraged taking seriously alternative regime types except in the search for their flaws and shortcomings. As a Democrat, with a small d, I am profoundly sympathetic to the normative biases of political science. As a political scientist, however, I have been deeply frustrated by our inability, nay unwillingness, to take authoritarianism seriously. The vast majority of human history has been organized in what we would now call authoritarian or at least non-democratic regimes. Tribes and kingships and monarchies and oligarchies and empires and city-states and slave republics are far more common than democracy. Scattered across the landscape of Egypt alone is evidence of millennia of remarkably powerful polities whose rulers were not even mere mortals, but the children of gods. Yet these are all treated by political science as endearing or sometimes grotesque anachronisms, the realm of disciplines like history and anthropology, but not the responsibility of a science of politics. Why, now that the Arab world seems to be shrugging off the shackles of anachronistic authoritarianism, should we care? Well, I think in some ways, for those of us who study the region and for those of us who live there, it may be even more important than ever. So as I said, this lecture is designed to persuade you of the proposition that thinking systematically about the science of politics is important. I will spend the next 10, 15 minutes or so on a discussion of the state of the art in political science. Um, those of you, as I said earlier, more interested in the politics will have to bear with me for a little while. Um, and then I will return to the Arab uprisings and how this political science might help us understand what's happening in the region. Shortly before he died several years ago, Charles Tilley, who was in fact a sociologist, published a small book called Democracy, in which he argued that there are several reasons why we actually need to know whether a country is democratic, and by implication, what else it might be. Democracies behave differently, he said. They make alliances and break commitments, accept loans, offer credit, and declare war in ways different from other kinds of regimes. 
so too the quality of life in a democracy is different and the nature of political change is distinctive. On all these dimensions, understanding how they behave internationally, how they evolve, and how they treat their own citizens, being able to characterize not just democracies but other different kinds of regimes would be enormously valuable to scientists and policymakers alike. In fact, the Arab uprisings of this year give us both an opportunity to celebrate the first genuine efforts at democratization in the Arab world. And let me be clear, I think, with some qualifications that will become apparent before I finish. These are developments to be welcomed, celebrated, embraced, and enjoyed. But it also gives us an occasion to examine exactly why and how the varied nature of authoritarian regimes is important to understanding political change. Common causes widespread pro protest in virtually every country in the region have already produced very varied effects in government responses and in the level and character of success of the protests. We should be able to say why we should be able to say something about what the ultimate effects on these countries will be, how, on how they behave and how they will evolve and how they treat their citizens. So the question then becomes, how do we start to think about what the character, what, what is affecting the character of this change? What intervening variables, if you will, will account for the increasingly obviously different outcomes across the region. So permit me a minute or two in the technicalities of typologizing. As it is typically used in political science, a regime is the set of rules, cultural or social norms, that regulate the operation of government and its interactions with society, including how its incumbents are selected. A regime may be, for example, an absolute monarchy whose king is selected by, say, divine right and a primogeniture, or a constitutional monarchy who king, whose king reigns but does not rule, or a democratic republic or a socialist republic, and so forth and so on. The government itself is those incumbents and policies, as, is, is the, those incumbents selected by that mechanism determined by the regime and the policies associated with them. In the United States, for those of you who are Americans, we typically call what most Europeans call a government an administration, as in the Obama administration. The US and the UK are democratic regimes, slightly different versions, let it be said, as the US is a presidential system and the UK parliamentary, but they are both democracies. All of the regimes about which we are concerned are devices that I described are devices to produce and regulate the government of a modern state. And for that, we will borrow Max Weber's definition. A political unit is a state if and insofar as its administrative staff successfully uphold a claim on the monopoly of the legitimate use of violence in the enforcement of its order. That is to say, a state is ensuring law and order. Now, typically, these three layers of political organization are distinguishable. You have a government, you have a regime, and you have a state. Morocco, for example, has been a relatively stable state for centuries, recognized, if sometimes grudgingly, by those who live there for its monopoly of the legitimate use of force. Its regime is a more or less absolutist monarchy, and its government is selected by the king 
largely these days from an elected parliament. Sometimes the distinction is less clear. Saudi Arabia, for example, is a state defined, as you can tell by its name, by a family. And whether it is the family or a separable state that upholds a claim to the legitimate use of force is not altogether clear. That family provides the principal incumbents of government through the mechanism of a quasi-monarchical regime. Most discussions of democracy as a regime type are predicated on the assumption that the state is not a matter of contention. In North America and Europe, that is by and large a reasonable assumption. In the Arab world, however, as the Saudi instance suggests, the state as an organizing principle of politics is not uncontested. And certainly the states currently arrayed across the map do not necessarily all enjoy recognition as legitimate sources of law and order. The Syrian Ba'ath Party's continuing rhetorical attachment to Arab nationalism, the ongoing ambiguity of the status of Palestine and hence of the states in which large numbers of Palestinians reside, and the refusal of the Libyan ruler to acknowledge his status as a head of state, he is, he insists, the leader of a revolution, all illustrate the various ways in which the continuing dispute about the state and its representatives in the region are expressed. How do we define different kinds of regimes and how do we tell a democracy from an authoritarian regime? Let us stipulate for the moment that we know when we see a state, although as I've just suggested, that's not always the case. In his magisterial synthesis published in 1975, Juan Linz in Totalitarian and Authoritarian Regimes attempted to develop a typology of regimes, and it remains the standard for such efforts to this day. He began his synthetic essay with the revealing observation, and I return to remind you of the democracy-centric political science with which we live, he said, one of the easiest ways to define a concept is to say what it is not. To do this obviously assumes that we know what something else is, so we can say that our concept is not the same. Here we will start from the assumption that we know what democracy is, and the center of our attention on all of the systems that do not fit our definition of democracy. We will deal here with non-democratic systems. So as I will shortly point out, this is yet again a reflection of the democracy-centric character of political science. You start with democracy and you define everything else in comparison to it. The preoccupation with democracy is the standard and measure, the norm of politics, is not difficult to discern in Linz. For him, a totalitarian regime, and keep in mind this is well before the fall of the Berlin Wall, was like democracy in that citizen participation was encouraged, but in other respects, totalitarianism was the opposite of democracy. It was institutionally and structurally monistic rather than pluralistic, is the way he put it, and far from the free-willing marketplace of ideas that characterize democratic competition, there is an exclusive autonomous ideology. In other words, totalitarianism turned democracy on its head. If totalitarianism was democracy's perverse antithesis, the two regimes shared one important feature. They were both what he called modern. Not all contemporary regimes were, and Linz felt constrained to briefly acknowledge what he called traditional authority and personal rulership. 
These were, he said, the residue of small and diminishing numbers of third world traditional political systems, and he did not treat them further. However, having distinguished modern from traditional and shown totalitarianism to be the modern perversion of democracy, he was left with everything else. All of the other regimes in the world that fit into none of these categories, and these he called authoritarian. Authoritarianism was for him, as for all subsequent political science, in fact a residual category, defined almost completely by what was missing. I quote him again, political systems with limited, not responsible pluralism, without elaborate ideology, without intensive political mobilization, and in which a leader or occasionally a small group exercises power within formally ill-defined limits, but actually quite predictable ones. The hope that there is something, as he said, actually quite predictable in regimes that were ill-defined, non-ideological, and even occasional led Linz to develop a typology of this subset of regimes itself. And for those of you who remember this, this list will be familiar. He distinguished bureaucratic military authoritarianism, organic statism, post-democratic and post-independent mobilizational authoritarianism, post-totalitarian authoritarianism, <coughs> racial and ethnic democracies, and a variety of other what he called defective and pre-totalitarian political situations and regimes. This was less a typology than an inventory, and in most important respects, it was an admission of failure. It is certainly true that there are some common elements in most democratic policy settings. In general, information is scarce. In discussion and debate are typically resist restricted so that the absence of reliable information is not as noticeable as it might be, but the tendency to make outrageous claims is. Political actors who know that they will never be held accountable can say pretty much anything they want. The Muslim Brotherhood can, can, can claim that Islam is the solution. The Egyptian National Democratic Party can call itself democratic. The leader of the Libyan Revolution can describe himself thusly and refer to his opponents as cockroaches with little fear of contradiction. Political action is also often restricted to authorized vehicles, groups, and institutions. This tends to reduce policy debate and amplify corruption, since policy decisions are shaped by proximity to those with access rather than rational deliberation. And finally, of course, compliance is not born of acquiescence, much less understanding, but typically of intimidation and fear, or at least resignation. Even here, though, sometimes you see what are called the weapons of the weak. My favorite is the ongoing battle over garbage disposal, an uncontroversial domain, one might think, throughout much of the Arab world. The mutual contempt of government and citizen is rarely so eloquently conveyed as in the casual littering in public spaces by the citizens and the ineffectual and indifferent collection of, by the authorities that produces debris-strewn landscapes across the region. This is something, by the way, I will return to when I talk a little bit about Egypt. For all their similarities, we have made little progress in identifying the crucial features of authoritarian regimes, however. There's no systematic scientific typology, no universally accepted dimensions upon which the world's regimes are arrayed. There's only democracy, its perversion, and its absence. 
and I argue that the recent enthusiasm for hybrid regimes merely carries this ambiguity into the 21st century. Political science continues to be marked by its pre-Copernican conviction that democracy is the center of the political universe. Normative commitments, including some that I share, have distorted scientific standards. Perhaps, as is too often the case, we are better served by literature. In this instance, Tolstoy's famous observation that in fact, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Our authoritarian regimes, or at least the bulk of their citizens, may all be unhappy, but they are so in very different ways. And as I hope to show, exactly how will matter a great deal for the outcome of the processes of political change that we witness in the Arab world today. So let me look in a little detail about this change. Starting, as most of you will recall, in mid-December when the Tunisian vegetable vendor Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire in a display of helpless, hopeless frustration at government harassment, Almost every country in the Arab world has seen protests. His act was copied in Algeria, Jordan, and Egypt. Peaceful demonstrations, marches, and rallies, starting with protests against corruption, police brutality, and high food prices, escalated to calls for changes of policies in Saudi Arabia, Oman, of governments in Jordan, Morocco, and Bahrain, and ultimately of regimes in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, Yemen, and Syria. Virtually no country was exempt and no government unscathed. By mid-June, the governments of Algeria and Saudi Arabia had announced major infusions of money, including across-the-board wage increases. The cabinets of Jordan and Morocco had been sacked. The regimes in Egypt and Tunisia had fallen. Libya had slid into civil war. Yemen was in limbo after the evacuation of the president for medical treatment when he was injured in a bombing. And Syria was confronting a brutal crackdown by its government. Yes, there were certain common themes in these uprisings. The new information and communications technologies, especially the social media, were important in fueling and disseminating the protests. In obvious ways, they permitted access to information about the way people live elsewhere in the world, and they permitted organization and communication among and across protesters within and beyond the borders of each country. Perhaps more subtly, these technologies also empowered a generation who had become accustomed years ago to being more tech-savvy and hence in modest but significant ways more knowledgeable and authoritative than their parents. The young people of the Arab world are not only a large proportion of the population, as we know, this is after all the youth bulge, but their experience of growing up is qualitatively different from that of their parents. This generational cohort taught themselves and then their parents to use these technologies and in do doing so assumed a kind of responsibility for themselves and their families that their parents had not born at the same age. Fifteen years ago there were no mobile phones in Egypt and as, if in, as any of you who ever visited the country then will know, the inadequacy of the telephone network was a regular staple of the fabled Egyptian humor. Ten years ago, there were a million mobile phones, and today, in a country of 85 million people, there are 65 million mobile phones. It is, of course, the youth of the country who grew up with this technology, who taught their parents how it worked. 
Their impatience and frustration at being unable to deploy the information they can access, the knowledge they have acquired, and the responsibility they have shouldered goes a long way to explain the millions of young people who continue to militate for more open, transparent, and accountable government. This is reflected in another common theme in these uprisings. Although in many places economic grievances played an important role in the early mobilizations, by and large, these were liberal, participatory, deliberative revolts, almost reminiscent of the liberal democratic revolutions of 19th century Europe. That is, they are about demands for citizenship. The nearly universally complacent, unresponsive, and often contemptuous policies and positions of the governments produced a nearly universal response. Demands for effective citizenship, personal agency, and government accountability. Hence the remarkable accent on dignity across the region. And in this, many of the aspiring citizens surprised even themselves. The community watches that sprang up in the wake of the still mysterious, but as it turned out, very valuable and instructive withdrawal of the police in Egypt, not only demonstrated that Egypt was not on the brink of chaos, as the government had argued, but that ordinary citizens across the country, not just the protesters in Tahrir Square or Alexandria or Suez, would be able to take responsibility for, and indeed wanted to take control of their own neighborhoods and by extension, their own country. This precipitated a remarkable campaign of cleaning the country. Hence, the garbage is no longer the kind of problem it once was. This desire to participate, to be useful and productive members of society was apparent throughout Egypt and in many other places in the region. In the young men who staffed the overnight community watch committees and manned the spontaneous roadblocks to set up, that were set up to protect residents from prisoners who were released when the police vanished. For the first time, neighbors of all social classes came out of their politically imposed isolation and got to know each other. And the young people at the barricades enjoyed the acknowledgement, respect, and gratitude of those they protected. This experience of new networks of trust marks a qualitative and, in my view, permanent change in the conception and experience of citizenship on the part of many ordinary Egyptians. And as I have suggested, I do not think it is unique to Egypt. So if there were common elements across the region, elements, as I have suggested earlier, which I find great cause for optimism in many places, there have also been very different trajectories and already very different outcomes in the Arab uprisings. Why? Here we return to my unhappy families of authoritarianism. Although they are all unhappy in their own way, there are, in fact, patterns. Two, possibly three, characteristics seem to bode well for regime survival. One, governments that control large revenue streams that are independent of local production are able to diffuse or control opposition more effectively than those who do not. That is, governments in rentier states, such as the large oil and gas exporting countries of the region, may distribute resources so as to bolster acquiescence and strengthen coercion and thereby survive political protest more effectively. Where there is no taxation, enhanced distribution appears to divert calls for greater political representation. This was the approach for regimes as otherwise diverse as Saudi Arabia, Algeria, and Oman. 
Obviously, however, Libya's counterexample suggests that this cannot be the only factor. Two, timing is important, and quick, decisive responses to protesters' demands enhanced the prospect for regime survival. One of the striking features of events in Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, and Libya was how slowly and maladroitly the rulers responded to the initial protests. Had they made the concessions they eventually made even a week or so earlier, all three of these presidents would probably still be in office and Gaddafi would not be under siege in Tripoli. The relative alacrity of the responses of the rulers of Jordan and Morocco and Oman in sacking their cabinets and promising further reforms seemed to stave off and possibly diffuse altogether more serious calls for the downfall of the regime. Three, monarchy may be a useful device by which rulers can distance themselves from the failings of their policies, salvaging the regime by dismissing the government. This hypothesis is widely cited to explain the ability of the kings of Morocco, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Oman to weather protests that seems to have capsized presidents elsewhere. Although the first two factors, the availability of resources to the government and the agility of the ru ruler, confound this argument to some extent, as Algeria suggests. But what of those regimes that fell or seemed to be collapsing? We have also to account for the relative ease with which the Egyptians and Tunisians were able to slip out from under their governments to build new regimes, while the Libyans and Yemenis seem to be fighting long and as yet inconclusive civil wars, and, the, and Syria's citizens face a brutal onslaught from their own rulers. This leads to another set of hypotheses which link the regime not simply to its revenues and rulers, but to the state over which it presides. In countries where affiliation to the state is widespread and clear-cut, discarding the regime is relatively unthreatening. No Egyptian or Tunisian worried that his passport would be devalued or his right to live in his country would be challenged should the president resign and the constitution be rewritten. The militaries were comfortable sacrificing the regime for the future of the state. By contrast, in countries where the state is weak, where it does not enjoy a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence or where the legitimacy of that monopoly is widely contested, the regime change entails state collapse. In Libya, one of the few features of life all Libyans share is their passport, and it displays the name of a country, the socialist Libyan Arab people's Jamaharia, to which very few feel any affinity or loyalty. Thus, the breakdown of the regime has triggered a collapse of the, what state apparatus there was, which in turn provoked political opportunism and alliance building that may or may not be sustainable. Similarly, in Yemen, where the authority of tribal leaders routinely trumps that of the putative central government, the fall of the regime removes the device by which tribes negotiated their relations. Now, the third category, so you have strong states and you have very weak states. You also have states where the project of the regime is state building. In those countries, the regime is so closely tied, the identity of the regime is so closely tied to that of the state itself that efforts to dislodge the regime are interpreted as a challenge to the state itself. Here, the regime and its allies are better equipped than their weak state counterparts. They have built at least some of the elements of a modern state, including, most importantly, a modern standing army 
for example, and a public bureaucracy. Unlike the regimes in strong states, however, where the militaries are loyal not to the regime but the state itself, these state-building regimes have more resources and their supporters have more to lose should the regime fall and the state-building project thereby be reversed. Hence, these regimes and their military supporters are likely to be quite brutal in suppressing opposition, as we see in Syria. And I would argue, I would remind you, we saw in Algeria in the 1990s. So the nature of the authoritarian regime does matter as we try and understand, explain, or perhaps even anticipate what happens in regime change. Authoritarian regimes in their relatively low premium on institutions amplify the importance of the ruler, hence the issue of timing is particularly important, and reminds us that the distribution of political agility and skill on the part of rulers particularly and their advisors is an important component of political change. Authoritarian regimes dispose of different kinds of revenue bases, and these can be crucial in determining their ability to respond to popular demands. Authoritarian regimes have different legitimacy formula, and rulers who can distance themselves from their governments, such as kings, may have opportunities to respond to popular demands for change that permit regime survival. Authoritarian regimes may reflect and obscure very different kinds of states. Strong states permit regime change to take place relatively peacefully and efficiently. Weak states collapse as their regimes fall, and threats to regimes in states in formation may pose existential threats to governments with relatively high levels of control over military resources and hence provoke unusually brutal responses. What does this mean, all mean for the Arab uprisings of 2011? There is, in my view, ample reason for optimism in Egypt and Tunisia. Strong states, populations with robust identities as citizens, and increasingly experienced and agile political actors bode well for a successful, if difficult and contested, regime change and the building of sustainable institutions of more open, transparent, and accountable government. The amplified importance of individual skill and circumstances of weak institutions does heighten the contingent quality of some of the specific outcomes. The skills of the members of government, the military leadership, the protest organizers, and public intellectuals will shape some of the process, including its speed and institutional results. Nonetheless, I think that these transitions in Egypt and Tunisia have every reason to work, and they will be managed domestically. For the countries facing regime collapse, state collapse, particularly Libya, the longer the stalemated civil war goes on, the more difficult the reconstruction becomes as non-state identities are forged and strengthened in battle, while civic relationships are suspended and eroded in wartime. Tribal and regional networks shift and shrink, political opportunism is reinforced as a survival strategy, and mistrust grows not only between government supporters and opponents, but within the general population. At the end of the war, however it ends, the rebuilding of the state apparatus and the construction of a regime that can take responsibility for its functioning will very likely require international assistance, and its recipients are likely to mistrust and resent offers of such 
assistance. For the regimes that are constructing states, and this includes not only Syria but also Algeria and Iraq, which both saw ample violence in the last 20 years and may not be in a position to be quite as draconian today as their Syrian counterparts, the international community will be confronted far more starkly than they have been in Libya with the challenge of taking seriously their rhetorical commitment to a responsibility to protect populations at risk from their own governments. So, as Charles Tilley reminded us, there are good reasons to think that the nature of the regime ch shapes how states operate internationally, what the quality of life and the polity is like, and how political change takes place. On all of these dimensions, understanding how they behave internationally, how they treat their own citizens, and how they evolve, understanding how the Arab uprisings will continue requires that we take authoritarianism seriously. And on that note, I thank you very much. I think we have 40 minutes for questions, so we'll pay. Shall we pay for questions in a sec? Fine. All right. Please. Thank you for your, your remarks, uh, very interesting. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on the role of supranational uh, institutions, and particularly um, if you might comment on the GCC enlargement and the Arab League. Thanks. Please. Hi, Lisa. Thank you very much. Um, she's my former supervisor. Um, <laughs> I'm curious about international intervention, uh, not necessarily supranational um, institutions, but rather, say, the US or Russia. <laughs> and what's the question? What, is, what role can they play? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Lisa. I wanted to ask whether, from the West's perspective, it's better for us to have friendly authoritarian regimes or unfriendly democratic countries? One more question in the first set. Please. Uh, thank you, Professor, for uh, your presentation. I have two questions, if uh, that's possible. The first is regarding the definition of democracy as um, it features in the literature. Because uh, I have the impression that it is mainly understood in procedural terms, um, and it implies uh, the following characteristics: that it, you know, you have periodic elections of governments by part of the of the uh, population, depending on the extent of the franchise, uh, a bundle of liberal rights, um, which seems to me that it's very close to what Dahl calls polyarchy. Um, and that's the hegemonic understanding of, the, of the, the concept that we have now, and it is far from being um, value-free or devoid of, of uh, class content. Um, so when we talk about democracy, how are we defining it, first of all? And regarding my second question, is, um, it, it's uh, related to the regime survival. 
um, and you talked about um, endogenous or internal uh, fa factors such as the type of the regime, whether it's a monarchy or um, a republic, and the second one is um, income generation and uh, you know in rentier states and so, so on. So, what about external external factors uh, such as external support and and the, the position of these countries individually or the region in uh, in general? Um, and their participation in international processes such as the global war on terror. Okay. Um, there's actually, apart from one or two elements of this, um, a theme that runs through all of this, which is the rest of the world. Um, what role has the rest of the world played in this, whether it's, you know, international intervention, should there be, you know, and so forth and so on. And I actually, um, without belittling the importance of the rest of the world, think that one of the things that's remarkably important about these uprisings is that they are not about the rest of the world. These are citizens demanding accountable government. Now, ultimately, one can imagine that these citizens will produce accountable government, which will then have a set of foreign policy positions and so forth and so on that are not necessarily friendly to the West. Um, but at this juncture, the extent to which the experience of the uprisings is about internal issues, is about the governments themselves, I think needs to be emphasized. Um, on the, to, to go through the questions themselves, um, the supranational or regional um, institutions have been relatively um, modest in their importance. The Arab League was pretty much paralyzed by the time Amr Musa became a candidate for the presidency of Egypt after the revolution there. Um, and I don't think the Arab League is going to be able to take a particularly um, effective role in any of this because, of course, it's going to be completely conflicted out by the different outcomes of each of the uprisings in the region. Um, the GCC enlargement, I must say, most of us found somewhat amusing since it then becomes a League of Monarchies, in which case it should be called the League of Monarchies, but it's not about the Gulf and the issues in the Gulf any longer. Um, so it's not, apart from the fact that this may, may be a vehicle by which some of the countries in the region can channel somewhat more foreign aid to Morocco and Jordan, it's not clear that it would have much more effect than that, and of course they can give foreign aid to Morocco and Jordan any way they want to. Um, international intervention, I mean, I think the, the, the principal interesting question at this juncture is what did people think they were doing in Libya? What did the United States and the um, Europeans think they were doing in Libya? And I actually would remind you, I think now there's a lot of sort of buyer's remorse of, you know, we sort of, the United States went in too quickly, didn't really think about it, didn't know what its, the consequences were, and so forth. But I think it's important to remember that at the time of that intervention, it wasn't simply about what was happening in Libya, which seemed to be at, at best a stalemate and at worst a reversal of the successes of the protests against the Gaddafi regime. But that also risked taking the um, momentum out of what was happening at the time in Egypt and Tunisia. And there was a concern, um, I think a fairly widespread concern, that that would be a bad thing. And so this was seen in a, if not region-wide, certainly in a context where 
part of the calculus was for the Americans having already gone out saying, all right, we're going to live with a new government in Tunisia and we're going to live with a new government in Egypt. Now we don't want that to seem like we went out too far and we're stuck. So they were anticipating that this would be a way of supporting the changes that were going on in Tunisia and Egypt. Of course, everybody thought that the intervention would precipitate the um, almost immediate collapse of the Gaddafi government, and so we wouldn't have this now months later of difficulties. But, but that was, I think, the calculus at the time. Um, I think it is interesting that the rationale was the responsibility to protect, um, because it was the first time that that was invoked, certainly in this region, and it's not clear that it was the ideal test case of that responsibility to protect formula. Um, but I think that's part of what was um, the intent at the time, and that was the fig leaf that seemed to fit the bill. Um, it's the, the difficulty at this juncture is that it has not produced the effect it was intended to, leaving both the interveners, that is to say um, the United States and the Europeans sort of in a difficult position, how long are they going to continue to do this? Um, and it has undermined their um, welcome a little bit in Libya. So whatever happens in Libya over the course of time, the fact that it has taken a very long time to happen will have an effect both on intra-Libyan political relations and Libyan relations with the rest of the world. Um, happy to talk more about Libya and the likely, the increasing likelihood that I think Libya as a single country will not survive this. Um, from the Western perspective, this better are we better off with friendly authoritarians or unfriendly democracies? I think the era when friendly authoritarians are reliable is over, um, and so there isn't any point. I mean, in that sense, the question is mooted by the fact that friendly authoritarians are no longer stable not only in this region, but sort of in the world. If you could assume that your authoritarian allies would be in power for 30 years, maybe you would make that calculus. But at this point, I don't think there are that many authoritarian regimes that are as stable as would be useful to the world's democracies. So increasingly, that's a calculus that leans toward learning to live with what you called and probably fairly unfriendly democracies. Um, but, you know, France is unfriendly to the United States, and we've learned to live with that. Um, I think it's, in other words, I think one begins to live with long-standing relationships in which policy disputes and debates take place as an order, you know, as a routine matter. That's how you learn to live with democratic governments, and it's not, as we can tell from the transatlantic relationships that hard to live with. So I think that's really what the project should be. It is not to prevent the appearance of democratic governments. It's learning to live with governments with which you disagree about things. Um, and in that respect, I, I perhaps should make an observation about particularly American, but also to some extent European relations with the country, with the governments in the Arab world especially. Um, in some respects, the accent on the relationship with individuals, that is to say, we love Mubarak and we hate Gaddafi, that kind of thing, was in lieu of relations with the countries themselves. Very little genuine economic intercourse, very little so forth and so on. So the, the, 
rulers became the proxy for any kind of real relations with the country. The more relations you have with the country, as the United States and France demonstrate, the more you can get past the fact that every once in a while there are policy disputes. So in some respects, the lesson in all of this is make sure you know the country and make sure you have relations with a variety of constituencies within the country. Do not say, I will not talk to anybody that the ruler says I shouldn't talk to. That is, over the long run, self-defeating. Um, the definition of democracy is, of course, you're quite right, quite contested. Um, and it is true that everybody from Linz to Dahl and so forth and so on, use, well, not everybody, but there is a sort of presumption that the procedural definition is good enough for all of us and so forth. You will notice that I talk about the likelihood that Egypt, for example, or Tunisia will um, develop transparent, accountable government. I don't know what those institutions are going to look like. And honestly, I don't have any particular preference about what those institutions will look like. You can do that with parliamentary systems, with presidential systems, with federal systems, with centralized systems, with all sorts of devices. And that usually reflects the political history of the place in question. That is not something where you sit in London or Washington or even Cairo and sort of draw it up and say this applies everywhere. So as far as I'm concerned, I do think that this is about accountable government in a context in which people did not historically experience or even expect accountable government. So there will be a lot of contestation and debate and pushing and shoving and unruliness about what those institutions look like. That's fine with me. As a political scientist, as a Democrat, I think that's how this should develop. Um, and in fact, I remind you that one of the um, sort of basic uh, um, sort of principles of politics is people are not given rights, they demand them. And this is what we're seeing now. We're seeing people demand rights. Well, people are going to resist that. The governments typically resist that. It's much easier if you don't have to deal with citizens with rights. So you will see this contestation, and it will produce some kinds of institutions, some of which are completely familiar to those of us in the UK or the US, and some will be unique to the circumstances. And as I say, I think that's what one would want. So the institutional design question, I think, is fascinating. I think every political scientist should be watching how this institutional design question is addressed in Tunisia and Egypt. And I don't think that there's any particular ideal version of that. Um, I do think the, the elements that are important, or at least are important in the um, debate and deliberation in Egypt and Tunisia today, are about transparency and about accountability and how that happens and what sort of institutions guarantee that, I think, will vary. Four more questions. Katerina? All right. Other one of uh, Katerina Dallacura, LSE. Um, I have two questions. The first is, you started by distinguishing between regime, government, and state. But where do you place the army in this distinction, particularly in the cases of Tunisia and Egypt? Secondly, I appreciate very much your uh, argument that this is the best time to revisit the analysis of the Middle East, of Middle East politics prior to what 
has been recently happening. One strong argument uh, explaining authoritarianism in the region came from Eva Balin, who argued that we have to look at the strength of the intelligence and security services to explain why authoritarianism persists. Now, my question to you is, why did we see in Tunisia and Egypt these security and intelligence services, which were so powerful, um, disintegrate with such relative ease? And how does that fit in with the argument of Eva, Eva Bilin? No, you don't have a question, all right. Here, please. Okay. We have two questions here. Hi, I'm Jonathan. I think the mic went off. Hmm. To get into the question now. <laughs> I was uh, interested in your comparison of Syria and Algeria. You kind of lumped them together in something called state building. I don't understand how that applies to Syria. But more particularly, I wonder if you could draw distinctions between Syria and, and Algeria. After all, Algeria has a president, Bouteflika, who is relatively uncorrupt, and the Assad family is considered very corrupt. Uh, Bouteflika is not the son of a ruler, and his son will not be a ruler. And Bashar Assad inherited his throne from his father. In fact, they changed the constitution within 24 hours to make that possible. Finally, the, uh, the Algerian army appears strong and coherent and cohesive. The Syrian army is strong, but divided. You have Maher Assad's forces and you have the others. So I wondered if you could contrast the two and therefore suggest that perhaps Algeria has a better chance of surviving than Syria's regime. Thank you. Please. Robert Wade, LSE. Um, as a good political scientist, you have emphasized uh, the way that protesters were demanding accountable government, but you have mentioned uh, virtually nothing about what you could call economics, namely uh, unemployment and food prices. And I'm wondering to what extent you think that the protests were motivated uh, even more than the demand for accountable government, although that might have been what they said, by distress at the very high levels of unemployment and soaring food prices. All right, we have a, please. Um, hi, my name is Noha. I'm a Masters of Development student. Uh, I'm from Egypt as well. And um, you've mentioned a lot about the timing. And currently, we've seen the protests taking place again in Tahrir Square because of the delay of the response of the government of the military to the, to the public demand in general. So where do you see this going and taking place, especially that during Mubarak regimes, uh, protests refute, refused to leave the square because of time and consistent promises? And what is probably the future of le leadership in Egypt in that case? Thank you. Um, all right, in, I will go, I think, again in order. Um, on the distinction of regime government and state, a and where is the army, I th this is an important distinction, and it does get, in a sense, I think, to some of the questions about Algeria and Syria. Um, if the army views itself and is widely viewed um, by the citizenry, as I think is the case in Egypt and Tunisia, as the protector of the state, 
as opposed to an instrument or extension of the regime, then it's not very hard, as proved to be the case, for them to be called out and refuse to fire on their own citizens on behalf of the regime. So in, in that instance, this is um, an indicator of the strength of the state, that the military apparatus is seen as a function of the state, not of the regime. But if you have an instance where the, regime, where the military is an expression and extension of the regime, as I would argue is the case in both Algeria and Syria, then the, the challenge of defecting from the regime to save the state is much greater. So from my point of view, this is one of the crucial questions of where is the loyalty of the military in these circumstances. And I think, and take, you know, Libya, where the thing just came apart at the seams and people started defecting almost instantly. There was no coherent military. So that's one. You can have a coherent military that is the um, agent of the state, or you can have a coherent military that is the agent of the regime. If it's the agent of the state, they're prepared to sacrifice the regime. If they're the agent of the regime, they're clearly not. So that's the, that's, I think the, the, this question of the role of the military is important and I think it, it speaks to the, this distinction. Um, the intelligence and security apparatus, I think it is clearly something that like food subsidies was one of the things on which these governments spent money in order to keep themselves in power. Um, I do think it's interesting in a certain sense that they, um, collapsed as, as quickly as they did, although in both Tunisia and, and Egypt, there's sort of interesting stories, I think, in some respects. Keep in mind that, that Ben Ali in Tunisia was actually from the police. Um, he was not from the army, and there was a longstanding tension between the police and the army, and Ben Ali used the police um, to support the regime, and that was one of the reasons why the army was willing to defect, that they had for a long time resented the role of the police. Um, by contrast, in Egypt, it was, I think, a massive miscalculation on the part of the government to withdraw the police, um, in theory, to demonstrate that all hell would break loose without the police, and it didn't. So that was essentially the, the delegitimization of the police virtually overnight. Um, had they not done that, I think it might have been much more of an open question on the part of individual citizens of whether they dared go out. But once the police weren't there, then they not only dared go out, but felt they needed to go out. And that empowered them, and that made them, if you will, owners of the country again. Um, so I think this distinction of the police or the police-slash-intelligence apparatus, the Ministry of the Interior, and the Army is a very important one. And it turns out that the Ministry of the Interior um, is more manipulable by the regime, and therefore, in a sense, in circumstances where the state is relatively strong, not as powerful in support of the regime in the long run. Um, in state building in Syria and Algeria, um, you did the contrast for me. I don't have to do that. There are considerable differences between the two uh, countries, but I would argue um, that in both cases, 
the military apparatus continues to be much more a reflection of the regime than it is of the state. It is going to be hard for the military in Algeria to walk away from a regime that is based on it. Um, and similarly, in Syria, it may not be quite as coherent and so forth, but it is very much the expression of the regime. And it's going to have trouble saying, okay, we're giving up on Assad to protect Syria. They won't do it. And I don't think the Algerians would do it either. And I think if you look at what happened in part during the 1990s, that's part of what it was about. When they were afraid in the, in, after the elections that the regime was going to slip out, they wouldn't let it. They were going to back the, their old regime, which was what they were accustomed to, the FLN and so forth and so on. So one can, I mean, it's certainly true that they're different in important respects, and obviously the, you know, kind of family dynasty business is not an issue in Algeria. Um, but I do think that in these important um, features, they are similar. These are both regimes who th see themselves as building the state and using the military to do that. Um, and I think that does make regime change very, very hard. Um, I don't think this is about economics. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of economic grievances and haven't been a lot of economic grievances across the region for a very long time. And a lot of the failure, a lot of the complaints about the fact that governments are not accountable is the failure of the governments to pursue policies that would address these kinds of problems. So it's certainly true that in the discussion of you know, how you know the government isn't accountable, the fact that the governments have not pursued policies that really, you know, that the economic development strategies of the Mubarak and, and Ben Ali regimes were very much um, good numbers for the World Bank, no job creation, was frustrating. People could see it, people could feel it, people, you know, that was part of, but, to me, what has been so striking about this is the way both the protests develop and the grievances and the rhetoric around the protests have been a a wanting a sense of value and worthwhileness, and that you have as a citizen and you have it as somebody employed. So what a job is is an income. But what a job is, is also a feeling of self-worth. And in that respect, it is, these are connected. They're not separable. People aren't saying, you know, just give us more money, just give us jobs, you know, so forth. They want what that means to them as, you know, personal agency, if you will. And I think that's, that's important for us who do tend to default to, if I can put it this way, the sort of material explanations for things, and I do that as much as anybody else. One of the things that I have been really struck by in watching these unfold is the extent to which things like dignity and respect and wanting a government that doesn't, isn't contemptuous of me and so forth and so on have been elements in all, almost all of the protests. Um, on timing and Egypt, uh, I mean, one of the things that I find um, fascinating about the, the, this dynamic is the extent to which, in the absence of institutions that ensure accountability, 
by the government, Friday protests have become an institution to ensure accountability. And it's very clear that the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces and the Cabinet are not going to get out in front of anybody. They are going to be pulled kicking and screaming to every you know, reform that they undertake. But to tell you the truth, that's kind of the way governments are. Unless they're forced to be accountable, unless they're forced into these mechanisms saying, I'm going to have to run for re-election, and therefore I better plan ahead, they don't. They're not built to be accountable. They're only accountable if that's demanded by the populace. So from my vantage point, I think it is actually a very productive dynamic that much as it's a trial for those of us that run things on Tahrir Square, right, it would be much easier, if, you know, but, but in terms of how people are learning about politics, both the government and the protesters are learning about how accountability works. And ultimately, I hope that that is institutionalized in a way that people can have Fridays for themselves and you know, other kinds of valuable aspects of human life. And I don't know what those institutions are necessarily. I don't think the Friday protests is a sustainable institution over the long run. But for now, it's a very effective vehicle for that. And I do think um, the fact that the protesters have been unwilling to let this government slide for very long. The temptation is obviously on the part of the government to say, you know, we're all tired, let's wait a month, let's do something later, it's much easier. Some of these people who you think should be tried for things are actually old colleagues of ours, we don't really want to do that, you know, so forth and so on. Any of us would behave that way if we were in that sort of situation. But no, their feet are being held to the fire by these repeated, now almost routinized protests. I think that's very productive. I actually think that that's a, a good sign. Um, as I say, everybody in Egypt is exhausted. I would just as soon not have to do every, but it works. And until there's some alternative to that, it works. So it also creates an incentive not to let this drag on too long and to actually have the elections, the Constitutional Assembly, the design of the new system so that this doesn't take for years and years. Shall we take one final set? Sure. Sure. Yes, I can, I'll be here till midnight if you're Please. not careful. <laughs> okay. Please. Here. Thank you. I want to come back a little bit to the, um, to the economic dimension of it. And I think what's striking when you look across the countries of the region is that there's three sets of vulnerabilities. One is a demographic set of vulnerabilities. You've got young population, 60% are below 29 years of age across the MENA region, which means high dependency ratios. Same time, you have a whole set of governance vulnerabilities and political uh, vulnerabilities having to do with lack of accountability, lack of good governance, um, lack of encompassing, lack of access to authority, um, political representation, you mentioned those quite clearly. The third set, however, is, is critical. The economic vulnerabilities are there. Um, you've got high food prices, high food price inflation. 
When you get a country like Egypt, which has government household budgets, 30% of which goes to food, and food price inflation hits 20%, that's an 8% decline in real income. So believe me, when you've got high youth unemployment of around 30%, which is the average across the region recorded, uh, with 60% below 29 years of age, um, those economic vulnerabilities hit you very hard. The reason why I think th these are fundamental is that unless you address those economic vulnerabilities, whatever you do um, concerning kifaya or dignity uh, or accessibility of power uh, will fall by the wayside if you don't address the economic vulnerabilities. So I think those are much more fundamental. And finding jobs for people, I think, is going to be the fundamental issue which all the regimes uh, of the region are going to face. And the issue, I think, is no longer people who are unemployed, but people who are unemployable. And the whole issue of educational reform, um, the economic transformation, the role of state-owned enterprises in the system has to be addressed. And I don't think we can leave those on the wayside and say to ourselves, all of this is just a movement in some way or other towards some form of democracy. All of that can fail miserably if we are not aware of the demographic vulnerabilities and the economic vulnerabilities. Uh, I have a question about timing. It so happened that after the fall of the regimes in Egypt and in Tunisia, we had protests in Libya and there was a violent government response to that and then the Western powers decided that they would go in. Subsequent to that, we had a similar protest in uh, Syria and the government again responded in a violent way. What I'm wondering is, suppose that order had been reversed. Suppose Syria, the protest had been in Syria first and then in Libya. Would the Western powers, do you think, have gone in and opposed the Syrian regime? Or is there something special about Libya um, uh, which made the Western powers um, uh, support the rebels against that government? Is the gentleman at, and then Chris. Hi, David Paxton, lawyer. Could you comment on the extent to which US foreign policy should concern itself with human rights promotion in the Middle East? Um, yes, Chris Phillips, Economist Intelligence Unit. Um, I was just going to ask a brief question, or two brief questions, uh, about the Gulf states and where they would fit into your typology of uh, strong, weak, or state-building states, in particular Bahrain, which hasn't really been mentioned that much, um, uh, and whether or not the fact that it could not defend its own regime and relied on the Saudi Arabians to uh, bail it out with its troops effectively, whether that um, represents what, what kind of regime that represents, what kind of state that represents. And also, just returning to an earlier question, I wonder whether or not actually the Gulf states uh, will still represent the friendly autocrats because of the necessity for keeping uh, states uh, and keep, keeping oil um, flowing as such. Uh, as seen, we've already seen um, the leader of Bahrain come to the streets, um, to the steps of Downing Street in the last few months. And it seems that actually there is becoming a geographical distinction whereby within foreign policy there is Sort of, there is a shift against the friendly autocrat with regard to the more populous uh, Levantine and North African states, but when it comes to Gulf policy, it doesn't really seem to have changed. One, one final question, please. She's been... 
Thank you. Uh, my name is Melissa Mubarak. I'm not related in any way to the exit <laughs> from present. I'm a Lebanese student uh, at LSE, and I would like to ask about um, a theory put forward by Sidney Tarot about social movements. He says that in order to trigger any social movement or revolution, there has to be, uh, his main argument is political opportunity, which is uh, because of a divide in the elite or a facilitation from the government. However, we see very clearly in Egypt that this is not the case and that in spite of government repression and no particular uh, division in the elite or no uh, divided front from the government, the people were able to protest and start the social movement. Uh, what do you think of that? And do you believe that a, a different theory should be proposed in order to explain this phenomenon? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I completely agree on the extent to which there are multiple vulnerabilities in this region. And clearly, I did accent the governance questions and um, did I think address at least the fact that there is a this is a sort of youth bulge moment, um, and I do think one of the things that any of the governments in the region and particularly Egypt's um, you know one of the things that wakes them up at night is the prospect of high commodity prices, particularly food. This is very worrisome, um, but. At this, and, and I do think that there are lots of things that we collectively, and if I were to be advising um, IFIs or anybody else, um, think we need to be attending to is much more the question of policies that would produce jobs that people could do and education that would produce people with the skills to do the jobs that are available and so forth and so on. That's clearly in many ways the crux of the matter and you know you don't have to run a university in Egypt to see that to be the case um, and in fact some of this is is very interesting one of the things that we're doing at AUC not to discuss what we're doing at AUC too much but we have a little project that's really interesting and it turns out to be much more effective than we thought it would be we're the only university in Egypt that has a career placement and advisory service where we teach our students how to write a resume We've now bottled that and taken it to a bunch of national universities so that the job leavers not only have whatever degree they have, but also have a resume which they had never been shown how to write. That makes it much easier for prospective employers to actually look at them and decide whether this is somebody with a skill set that we'd like to. So there, you know, the, the kind of market imperfections in the labor market in Egypt are really quite funny. They're odd. They're things like nobody knows how to write a resume, so how do they go out on a, I mean, at the university lever level. So there are lots of those kinds of things which I think are, are kind of fascinating um, elements of all of this. So I don't disagree. I think economic issues are crucial, but I don't think that they can be disaggregated from the political issues. And that was essentially what I was trying to say. I think it's true that um, you know, the absence of adequate and appropriate economic policies will be um, lethal to these new governments. At the same time, however, it was the, it, it, the, it's also the other thing, the absence of adequate political institutions permitted and exacerbated insane economic policies. So it's 
all of that together. And I think we, where we are in that cycle is people saying part of the reason why we haven't had good economic policies is because the governments weren't forced to think about us. And we want governments that are forced to think about us. So that doesn't mean that the cycle isn't, if you will, in the back of everyone's mind and isn't a part of what they're trying to, to capture in these protests. But I think right now they're more interested in developing the mechanisms by which the governments will, over the course of time, as a routine matter, have to be thinking about economic policies which do not simply respond to the IFIs but actually ha make an, have an impact domestically. So I mean, that's sort of what I was trying to get at. I do think much of the sense of a lack of dignity and so forth is in part um, a reflection of the deep, deep frustration people have in being able to make a living and you know, um, live a, a life they think is a respectable one. Um, the, hype, the, the counterfactual question on whether the protests had started in Syria before Libya, what would people have done? Um, I think that's very hard to tell because so much of what I think animated the intervention in Libya was a matter of the moment and what was going on in Egypt and Tunisia at that time as opposed to Libya itself. Um, so I, I don't have a particularly strong view of that question. Um, I do think, however, that um, the general consensus outside Libya at that time was that if the protesters had modest air support, they would prevail quickly. And therefore, it was going to be relatively inexpensive and relatively easy. I don't think anybody then or now thinks that that would be the case in Syria. So in that sense, the calculus was um, that Gaddafi would be easy, relatively easy to dispatch. That, of course, has turned out not to be the case, but at the time, I think there was a pretty wide consensus about that. Um, should the United States foreign policy um, promote human rights in the region? Um, I've been associated with Human Rights Watch for 25 years. I think we should all pr promote human rights everywhere, um, and I don't think anybody should not do that. So the answer to the question is, of course. Um, that said, I'm not sure that the United States has any privileged position in doing that, particularly these days when we have collected a number of human rights violations of our own. So I think in general, um, most countries should look at home before they go abroad. But I think we should all be promoting human rights. Um, the question on the strength and weaknesses of the Gulf states, I think, you know, in many respects, the small population um, Gulf states are really virtually anomalous um, kinds of polities. Um, these are as easily understood as family-owned businesses as they are anything else, if you want to think about kind of how we understand the dynamics. Um, the, the question, I mean, here you have a number of countries that are so small um, that they don't even really, the, the ruling families don't even really have subjects. Everybody's part of the ruling family in essence. Um, and what they have is employees. So I'm, I, you know, I'm partly being facetious but partly not being facetious about this issue of whether these constitute um, something one could describe in terms of state strength or weakness or anything. It's just almost qualitatively different. Um, that said, I do think the fact that Bahrain was bailed out by Saudi Arabia suggests a pretty weak state. 
so I I think that's pretty much where I would go with that and in that sense I think these are friendly autocrats the same way that some of the major multinational corporations are friendly autocrats um, and finally on tarot I mean I there are a variety of ways that any good social scientist will construct a um, um, theoretical framework that permit it to outlast its utility and I think Sidney Tarot is no different in this. The question of where you, where in a chronology of events you identify your political opportunity is part of the issue because if you looked at take Egypt on the 1st of December before there was anything going on in Tunisia, before then, and so forth and so on. It wasn't altogether clear that there was much of a political opportunity. By the time you had Tunisia, and by the time certainly you had the military coming out and saying we're not going to shoot, there was a huge opportunity, some of which created by the protests itself. So this issue of how you understand and calculate this question of opportunity, I think, is part of what you know, as I say, any good social scientist is going to make that sufficiently ambiguous so we can continue to debate it for a long time. I do think, more seriously, that these things are interactive, that the protests that took place before in Egypt, of which there were many, um, permitted the protesters to get more experienced about how to organize and so forth, but they didn't succeed at anything. And so, in a sense, there was a political opportunity it's easier to see in hindsight than at the time. But I think one of the crucial things that, that contributed to this in Egypt was not only that the Tunisians inspired everybody, which they clearly did, but also that the parliamentary elections in the fall were so infuriating that they, and, and they infuriated people in the government too. I mean, everybody was sort of embarrassed by that. And it did suggest that there were cracks in the government because the people who had rigged and manipulated those elections had gone so far that other people were disavowing them. That's a little bit of light within the government that if you protest you might get some of the people who were embarrassed to end up on your side. So one could argue going back um, that there were several moments when you saw little bits of opportunity, little lights in this um, regime that probably contributed, in, at least in part. Um, but then again, you know, some of it is contingent. Having the 25th of January be police day was just for the regime very unfortunate. Thank you. Thank you.